thank you for this morning that you have given to us. We thank you for the many graces, and we pray for your help right now, that we would be a people that are ready to receive your word, because your word is truth. And Lord, we want to feast on your word. We want to abide in Jesus, as the scriptures tell us, instruct us, command us to abide in the Son. And that we can do nothing apart from being connected and abiding in him. I pray that we would abide. Father, we know that one of the great marks of a disciple is that we bear fruit. And that we cannot bear fruit without you. I pray that we would be a people that bear good fruit. And Lord, the particular fruit that, I, that I'm asking and pleading you to help us with is to be a people that are on mission after lost people where we live, where we work, and where we play. We pray for your help. Lord, we would pray and ask that you would guide us and, and, and free us to repent if we need to repent from not being on mission. We pray that for our, the church in this country and throughout the world, Father, emblaze it in us a fire that just says we want to be on mission with our Lord because we care for your fame and your glory and it is practical and it, and it revives us and it makes us excited. Inflame that in us today, Father, by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We can encourage one another, Father, as means of grace, as hands and feet, as word. we share words and truth with one another, but your word is truth. Your word has power, and your gospel is powerful. We are reminded from your word that it is the, your power, the power of God for salvation. And we want to just see with our eyes the power of God to save people who are lost. And Lord, we pray that you would save us. And Father, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, we are continuing a series on living on mission. And we are on uh, the fifth part of that, uh, that sermon series on living on mission. And the, the big idea, though, what I'm talking about today is that if we're going to be a people that are living on mission for Jesus, we actually have to take time to have purposeful relationships with people that are not Christians. We need to have purposeful and intentional opportunities that we create individually to invest in and connect with people that are, and I can say it with the crowd that I'm looking at right now, who are lost and people who are sinners. We're sinners saved by grace, right? But we are we we know we, they need Jesus, and we need to Im, and we need to just radically embrace that. And my contention is, and all of our contention should be, because I know this is about me, is that that is not always the case in me. And I would assume, because you're a fellow struggler like me, that that is not always the case in you. That you would have intentional, purposeful relationships with people that are outside of the church that do not know Jesus Christ. 
and yet we can celebrate there's probably something happening to you if you hang out long enough where God is sort of igniting like a passion and excitement and an interest in caring for people that are outside. And, and if God is doing that, I'm, I, you, you just need to praise him and thank him because that is an act of God in our hearts. And so this morning, this is at the heart of what I'm going to address, is that we would be a people that would make those purposeful, intentional relationships. And so I'm going to open the word of God, and I'm going to show you that Jesus actually lays out what this looks like as we look at his life in the scriptures. And if he is this amazing model, he's so much more than a model, then shouldn't we follow him in this as well? Last week, I shared with you a very horrific story, a story of a family with 13 children, and uh, it was all over the news, right? And, and people pointed out the hypocrisy of it because someone, a family member of this guy said, oh, but he's such a good Christian man, and all the atheists were blogging and going crazy, and the world was slamming Christianity, and um, all of the unfairness of that aside, how different would it look on that neighborhood if the Christians on that street, if the Christians across the street, if the Christian that lived next door somehow was able to meet these folks and know their name and say, I see that you have a lot of kids. And I, I, have a, I have a ball. I mean, I mean what, like, like, what if the Christians in the area said, Dude, I would love to just let the kids come and, come and play. Out. You know, we have this thing and these other kids get together. And, like, would, you, would you like to let them come join us? Could you imagine how the story, only God knows, right? Could you imagine how different the story could look if, pos, if a Christian in the area, in the neighborhood, across the street, maybe next door, just knocked at the door and said, hey, would you guys ha like to have dinner with us? We know it's going to be 20 grand to feed your family tonight, but we we'd love to take that on. Because we love Jesus and we, we think, we just love to extend that to you. Could it look different? I want you to take your Bibles and I, and I want you to uh, first turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to share um, a couple of, uh, of stories from Scripture where we see Jesus taking time to in, um, be present and connected to and purposefully hanging out with people that are not Christians. And what we're going to see is that he does that. We're going to see it through some accusations that they have about him. Now, I'm going to read uh, big portions of this, uh, most of it, from starting in, in chapter 11, verse 1, and, and I'll kind of unravel some things. But well, at the heart of what I want to show you as we unfold this particular, this particular text is I want you to see that Jesus hangs out with lost people. And we see that by the negative response that people have about Jesus and the accusations they have about him. Okay? It says this. Now, when Jesus, starting in verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, I just want to take a left turn for a moment and show you something. 
when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach where? Was it in his own town? What Did he go across the country? He went to their cities. Why is it that Jesus would go to the cities of his disciples? Is it because he actually, those people have some relationships with people in those particular cities? You guys, we have connections and relationships with people that live right next door to us, with people in, our, in the areas where we live, in our, in our work, and where we live, and where we play. And Jesus is working relationally through his disciples with the message of his gospel through them, through the disciples, and the people that they know. We're going to come back to that. Now, when John, John was called the Baptist, right? He's the last prophet of God. They kill him. And he is this forerunner. He is the guy paving the way for Jesus. He's even the guy who, with his words, he says, that's, that's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The next verse talk, mentions John the baptizer. Now, when John heard, because he's in prison, when John was in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Another interesting thing that happens and is said by Jesus, because what we're going to see is there's quite a bit of people that are offended at what Jesus says, and I don't want you to be surprised as you get more and more missionally minded individually not just as a church, or like what we do. We'll, we'll do some special events because to, to, we want people to know who we are, right? People visit us because they actually see signs. They visit us because they, they look at our, our website. They just show up. Um, and there's a question of, hey, how do people know who we are? But right now, what we're looking at is us individually, and I don't want you to be surprised that there will be people, it's usually religious-type folk, that will be offended the more you get more missionally-minded. Because you will become a threat and Satan will not like it. You need to know and not be surprised. The more you think of outsiders and lost people and care for them and want them to know Jesus, that you will become a target for the evil one. But don't worry, you've been given a shield of faith by God. And you'll need to learn how to raise that up and let it extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What, do you, uh, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And they, he starts to describe him, okay? And he's going to talk about how good John is. Did, was it a reed shaken by the wind? This is a very strange thing for him to say. But what, but what he's saying is that John is not this wishy-washy prophet. He's actually very straightforward. He is, he is a, a powerful mouthpiece of God. He is not, he, he brought truth, okay? And this will make sense in light of the accusations about John. They said that, what people said about him was that, that he had a demon, okay? And he's saying, he's not like a, a reed shaking in the wind. What then do you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Now, this is a very odd thing to say as well. What this is is a slight on the people that are holding John the Baptist hostage. There are people in high places holding John the Baptist hostage. They're, they've imprisoned him. And where these people wear soft clothing. And this is a slight on them. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has been no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And this is a very strange thing as well for us to hear. What does he mean when he says that these people in the kingdom are greater and what it means is that they actually have more clarity and understanding of what it means. to them. They're, they're experiencing Jesus in, in, a, in a way that, that is different from the Old Testament times. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the old days, and you read about him in the Kings, and he was a respected prophet by the people of God. And to say this name, they would have a lot of respect for him. He's equating him with John because he's the guy that would be sent to be a forerunner to point out who Jesus is. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Another interesting thing that is pointed out by Jesus. Because one of the things he's pointing out is the sinfulness of man. He says, the one, let him who has ears hear. You know, one of the things that Jesus said is that my sheep hear my voice. And if you are his sheep, you hear his voice. As you connect with people that do not know Jesus and you are able to share the good news of the gospel, they will hear the voice of Jesus. They will be able to receive. This is why he says, if you have ears, let them hear. But Jesus is always in contact with people that are unable to receive what he says, especially when it comes to what they're going to say about Jesus and John in the following verse, and I'm coming up to it. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is him comparing to the, the religious people of his day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people, the people that he loved so much, but their hearts were so hard. Their hearts were so hard, brothers and sisters. They were so full of religiosity and Phariseeism that they were unwilling and unable to receive the good news of the gospel. And this is what Jesus says about them. What shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. This is what Jesus is saying. Why won't you do it our way, Jesus? Why won't you do it our way? We don't want to do it your way. And Jesus is saying, you are like children, saying, we played this song and you didn't do what I wanted. Now, part of why I'm, I'm, I'm unfolding this is there is an accusation that will come your way if you're going to get more missionally minded and care about people that are lost and spend time with them. And here's the deal. You will actually have to mess out, mess, hang out with people that are messy. I'm not saying put yourself in a sinful situation or a situation that you cannot handle, 
But if you hang around with people that do not know Jesus, you realize that people that don't do, know Jesus do things that people that don't know Jesus do. You know that, right? Now, this is where we get to the accusation, and we want to be aware that we will face some of these things. But the point I want you to understand is this, that Jesus hung out with lost people. It's so clear. In verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. John the Baptist, when you read about him, um, he, he would not drink alcohol. And uh, there's some connections to the Old Testament, uh, his particular role. He's this really, really pure, pure guy who has this very specific role, although I don't want you to walk away thinking that it's impure to have a taste of alcohol, because that's not what it means. But he was fulfilling a particular thing that, the, that he was called to do, and here's the deal. He did not come um, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, even though he would be very pure in the eyes of this, like, this Jewish religious culture, they said, he has a demon. Even though in their eyes, he would have been so clean. And then, look at what it says about Jesus. Now, keep in mind that this is a contrast between him and Jesus. Verse 19, the Son of Man, this is Jesus, he came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is a reference to the way the Proverbs lay themselves out. Wisdom calls out and we're to listen and, 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 and heed its call and and. The accusation of Jesus was that he was a glutton and a drunkard, drunkard, and yet he was neither of those things. And yet that's what they said about him. And what we see here is that Jesus spent time with people that do not know Jesus. And this is the model that's laid out for us. I, I want to show you a, a, a second one. In the Gospel of Luke, if you look, turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. This is another episode that we will see very clearly that Jesus spent time with people that were not Christians. In fact, he spent time with people that were known as sinners. And that we need to spend time with people who are not Christians because we want them to know Jesus. Luke chapter 7, here's the story, it begins at verse 36. You see, um, a Pharisee invited Jesus to his home. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. I'm going to come back to this later, but I want to just mention it real quick. You guys, if we're going to be a, uh, people that are living on mission, and if we're going to spend time with people that are not Christians, and, then we need to actually say yes to some things. When someone invites you into their home, this is a great opportunity to say yes. You see, one of the Pharisees, not a Christian, asked him to eat with him. 
and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Now, what's going to happen is there's going to be a, a, a woman who's a, a prostitute who's going to hear about Jesus who's at this meal, and she wants to go see him so badly. And we are going to see and hear an interaction between her and him and the Pharisees that are at the table. So this is what it says in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city, right, it's a euphemism for a prostitute, was a sinner when she learned that, that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. How would you like that to be our identity in the Bible? The Pharisee's house, right? Um, brought, excuse me, when he learned that, when she, excuse me, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of, of ointment. And it's super expensive, okay? This is super, super, this is all that she has. This is, she's probably, she probably we don't know, but maybe she sold everything to buy this. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she's sobbing. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, now, to visualize this, you would have to see what a, a first century meal would look like. There would be like a, a lower place of eating, and you would lay down. You didn't have chairs where you sat. You like would lay down on your side, and you could reach and dip things, and, and you're kind of laying out, reclining. Super uncomfortable for me. That would really hurt my back. So I'm not going anywhere where we eat like that. But, but they, they would be reclining. And then it says that she, so Jesus would be here reclining, and she came, was able to come into this area of eating kind of behind him. And she somehow is, for her tears to fall on his feet, he'd be reclining the front of him here and his feet here. And she's, he's facing this way and she's behind him. And she's just sobbing with tears in, in great and utter shame and just sobbing in remorse for what she's done. And her tears are just, just dripping all over his feet. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she does something that's just amazing. And wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She must have got down and she took her hair and she's, I mean, the people have got to be freaking out. I mean, a super conservative Jewish culture, letting down your hair, her reputation, and she's, she's drying his feet with her hair. And she's rubbing this ointment on his feet. Now, when the Pharisees had in, invited him, saw this, he said to himself, it's an important piece. Do you see that? The Pharisee sees this, and he says to himself under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who touched him, for she is a sinner. And Simon, and Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 500, 50. It's, it's a lot. It's like, it's like a day wage. It's a lot of money. 500 compared to 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. He cut it. He just ended it. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But she who is forgiven little loves little. And she said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, clearly, this... This person comes, she's broken over her sin, and the good news of the gospel, to hear the words from Jesus, your sins are forgiven. These debtors have this massive debt, and it's wiped away. Did you know that our debt was massive, and it was so much bigger than 500 denarii? It's infinitely more horrific, and yet our sin was taken and applied to Jesus at the cross, And his righteousness was in turn uh, imputed to us so that when God sees us, we are seen as righteous and clean. You guys, we are washed clean. We change. We exchange our sin to Jesus on the cross. And he puts on us his righteousness. That is the only way that we are clean. We bring nothing to God to forgive us our sins. Every single one of us deserves hell. But Jesus, because of what he has done, he washes us clean. And and I tell you this, I want to just, this is why we should be able to hang out with fellow fallen humanity, brothers and sisters, friends. Because they are fellow travelers and sinners like like we once were. And that they can have the forgiveness of sins through Christ if they were able to receive it. And this means that we will actually have to spend time with people that are lost. One of the things I want to ignite in us, in our band of missionaries, is a passion and a heart to live on mission. If we're going to be a people living on mission, we have to be the kind of people that embrace what the Bible says. And we're going to need to, um, I haven't even told you how to share the gospel. We're on lesson five. I just want our hearts to be reoriented in such a way that we are open to people that do not know Jesus by just building the relationships, knowing that Jesus actually spent time with people that do not know Jesus, and the accusations came because he spent time with those types of people, and people might say that about you. He hangs out with, she hangs out with. A while back, I... um, I heard a, a story of a young person who wanted to spend time with a group of fellow friends. And uh, a parent stepped in and, and talked to the group and said, hey, look, it's not a good idea. You shouldn't hang out with her. And then there was a, a, another Christian in this group who said, hey, look, I, I want this, this person to spend some time with us. I know she's not a Christian, but can, can she come spend time with us? And the mother stepped in and talked to the group and said, hey, look, you know what? No, don't do it. Don't hang out with her. The mother of this fallen person, this broken person, said, 
you guys, I know that she's been such a hard time. Would you please not give up on her? Would you pray for her? We know that she's been difficult. Would you please not give up with her? Would you, could you please pray for her? And then the other mother was like, no. And look, hey, as parents, I totally get it. There are, there are some people maybe we don't want our kids to hang out with because they're bad influence. Maybe our children are not ready to hang out with this particular person. They might not be helpful. I, I get, I understand the wisdom, I, and there's, I, I get it. And the thing that we have to walk through and work through and help instruct our children through is how to hang out with people that do not know Jesus and how to actually walk through that as they're ready. Otherwise, the danger that we run into is being like the, the, the religious people who don't want us to be stained by these people that are outside. Now, I get, you're going to have to apply this with wisdom in your own household. But one of the things that I would encourage you to do is keep praying for your kids and instructing them that as they come to know Jesus of how to love people that are outside the church, that are outside the faith, to know how to care for them and love them without being influenced by sinfulness. I mean, if this other person is going to get you to shoot up heroin, my goodness, don't do it. Or whatever sin that might lead you toward. This uh, mother on this side who was just pleading for her daughter eventually pulled the child out of the school because uh, she just couldn't recover from the relational stuff. But I want to show you something. In, in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus heals this demonic guy whose guy is possessed by demons, and then the guy comes to him and says, I really want to get in the boat with you, Jesus. You've healed me. I want to go in the boat. I want to go with you. And, and what Jesus says, I, he doesn't let him. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, instead, I want you to go to your friends. I want you to go to your home and your friends and share with them the mercy that God has shown to you. And what he does is he goes to this place that is his home and where his friends are, and it says that he went to the Decapolis, into the city, and he shared about the mercy that was shown to him. Jesus sends these people to the friends and relationships that they already have. And you and I have friendships that we need. So, so how do we do that? I want to take a few moments to talk about, like, how, how are we to do that? If we're to, to, to live our lives on mission in such a way that we're modeling after Jesus, who's spending time with, with, with people that do not know him, then we need to make purposeful, intentional times with them. How are we to do that? You see, here's some of the problems with that. We have a big problem. Most of us would say, you know what? I'm friendship tapped out. I'm busy. I don't have time. I'm super busy at work. I'm super busy with my kids. I'm super busy with my family. I'm super busy with what, just, just fill in the blank. I mean, everybody is busy. I mean, but, but dude, I just want to, what are we going to do one day when we stand before Jesus? Are we going to say, hey, Jesus, I'm so sorry I was busy? I'm so sorry I was a firefighter? I'm so sorry. I, whatever, it, whatever it is that's so consuming and everyone is busy, are we, what are we going to say to the Lord when we stand before him? How do we do it? How are we to spend, invest in our, in pe with people, invest time with people that don't know Jesus in our workplace, in our home, and, and where we play? Let me offer some, some thoughts on this as you process it. First of all, I would say that there might need to be a change that happens inside of us when it comes to managing the, the time. This sound might sound unconnected, it's a whole different message, but we might have to actually learn how to manage our, our household and our life in such a way so that we can free ourselves to do that. And one of the only ways that we will be able to do that is probably say no to some other things. 
We actually might have to prioritize certain things in our lives that are important, like our family, our relationship with God, our, our work time, and, and, and reaching lost people. And I would argue this, that if we actually don't put it into our time, we will never take the time to do that. How do you think we get up and go to work? I mean, it's a particular time slot for us. How do we take time with our wife? We actually have to carve out time for our spouse. How do we take time to, to shepherd and encourage our kids? We actually have to carve out time to spend time with each one of them. Whatever it is, movie date or whatever, dinner time. Something might have to change in us. Otherwise, what we will say continually is, I'm just super busy. I don't have time to invest in people that don't know Jesus. So how do we do that? What if when Jesus says, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, it might be as simple as actually starting with the neighbors that God has given you. If we were to look at where we live, whether it's a house or an apartment, we have someone that lives to the right, possibly, someone to the left, someone in front of us, someone catty corner, someone over here. Now, properties all look different. That's close, all right? It's, that's close for most of our neighborhoods. Here is the test. And hear, and hear me when I, when I address this test and see if this will help put us um, on, on mission after these people by spending some time with them. Do we know first the names of the people that live to our left? The names of the people that live to our right? The names of the people that live right across the street from us? The names of the people that live right over here? And the names of the people right over here? Do we know the first names? Do we know the last names? Do we know their kids' names? Are they single? Are they mar whatever, married, divorced? Do people come? Is it a drug house? I mean, like, what kind of stuff is going on? And, like, do we actually know who they are? What if God has sovereignly put you in that particular neighborhood so that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people that live right there? What if loving our neighbor is as simple as starting with those particular people? I'm going to share something that I've shared a year ago, and I just want to tell you how it worked for, for us. And this might not be your wiring, but maybe there's some other ways that might fit you as you do something like this. Now, clearly, Jesus is showing us that he spent time with people that do not know Jesus. One of the things we did years ago is we told people in our neighborhood, we put a flyer on their door. My, our children were really small. She walked around the, the baby buggy. It's not what it was, but you know, you get my picture. The baby buggy down the street, the stroller that didn't work right, and she handed an invitation to every single person that lived on our, on our street. And we ended up having about 85 people at our house for hot dogs and and Coke totally like broke the bank, you know, like we had no money, all that stuff. And like they came and hung out, and the last guy that came, he even brought this gigantic thing of tequila. He's like, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm like, man, thank you. And like, like, like the whole neighborhood was hanging out at our place, and it was super cool. And we ended up building relationships with people that lived there right on our street. Now, look, that might not be your wiring, and I realize that there's a certain risk level with doing something like that, and not all neighborhoods are good for doing that, but that happened in our particular neighborhood. And you know what happened as a result of that? When someone died, they would call me, and I would do their memorial service. When someone died, they would call me, and we would meet on that neighbor's house, and we would join hands, and we would pray. Because we had a hot dog barbecue at our house. 
I became like the neighborhood priest, and I wasn't pastoring at the time. And, I, and I'm just telling, like, like, just like learning some names and having a hot dog with people, because they live right there. Now, look, I want to contrast that with us trying to do that in the neighborhood that we live in now, because I want you to have the, re- the real picture of what this can and look, does look like, depending on your particular context, because it changes everywhere. We did the same thing, because it's going to work the same, right, in our neighborhood that we live in now? No, it's not. Totally different context, different types of attitudes, different types of neighborhood issues, different types of concerns. We invite 50 households, we get six households. We don't get the whole neighborhood. They're very suspicious. They have some history that we don't know about. But these things are going to take time. Like, we got to know some of them, but not all of them. There's a lot, and what we, but what happened was we learned something about our neighborhood. We learned about their suspicions. We learned about their history that otherwise we would not have known. We would still be the same place. But we had, they had, we had like a, just a whole table of cookies and desserts. We're expecting a ton of people, and there's like six households, right? But what if we started as simply as going to that person across the street with a card, this is for example, and just said, I'm so sorry, I've lived here since, I lived, like, so we've lived in our house nine years. I don't know your name. We would love to have dinner with you guys if you'd be up for that. You live right here. I feel so ashamed. Please forgive me. We'd love to just have dinner. Would you have dinner with us? It starts literally like that. Now, they can accept or reject the relationship, and then if there's an opportunity, then you can actually get into sharing the gospel, but it starts with making some relational contact. Jesus went into the cities where his disciples were because they had relational contacts. You, all of us have relational contacts in the place that God has put us. How are we to do that at work? That's a whole other thing, and that's as long as I want to take on that this morning. But I want you guys to start thinking about what that can look like. Next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to pray for people where we live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would, uh, we would be ignited with a heart for, for your mission. I pray that we would get to a place where we, we would, uh, we would in, invest purposefully with people that don't know Jesus where we live, where you have placed us. I pray that we would, we would follow that same example that we see in Jesus because of your glory, because of the good news of the gospel. May be those be things that are a furnace under us. And I pray that as we wrestle through time that we would be able to make the proper adjustments in Jesus' name. Amen.